passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Welcome back, everybody. It is John Pollock here at Post Wrestling and very happy to have this individual joining us today. It's very rare that we get any significant insight into the structure of UFC contracts. But this individual, not afraid to turn over some of those rocks and see what's underneath. A pleasure to be joined by John Nash from BloodyElbow.com. John, thanks so much for uh, taking some time to join us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. You have been doing uh, fantastic work throughout the years. I have told you off air, I have been a a long admirer of your work, uh, in particular going into and and explaining in in great detail the antitrust suits that are ongoing against the UFC. Uh, But recently you reported on some significant changes to UFC contracts that I think require a pretty big spotlight because it is it's very alarming when you look at some of the the minor changes and major changes that uh, could come out of it. I wanted to take our our viewers back a bit, though. And pre-2017, when you're looking at co- sort of the state of the typical restrictions on a UFC contract, like how restrictive would you assess these deals to be prior to uh, the, the introduction of the Sunset Clause and, and other other modifications we've seen over the years? Yeah, prior to mid-2017 is kind of the the the... the the stereotypical UFC contract that a lot of people might be familiar with, or, or at least the idea from like the stories at the time that they're incredibly restrictive. Uh, the UFC had a lot of power over their fighters. One is they forced the fighters to get their video game rights, the famous John Fitch incident. They have their merchandise rights and they own that stuff in perpetuity. They own the rights to your image rights in perpetuity. They could market it forever. And on top of that, they had all these tolling provisions. Uh, which on, on paper, your contract has a limited amount of time. It's like five fights, 20 months, right? So in 20 mm-hmm. months, you're supposed to get five fights. The general idea of the public is every three fights every year that the UFC has to give you. Now, technically, if they offer that, but that means they have to give you those fights. They, If they don't offer you those fights, it's only when the contract runs out that they have to have some sort of uh, 
accounting to basically say, why didn't we give you the fights? We have to pay you for that. On top of that, there's tons of ways they can extend the fights, you know, extend the contract. For any reason that you can't take a fight or for any reason they can't give you a fight, basically, they can extend that contract. And so the old contracts could run forever. I mean, uh, people might not wear Nate Diaz, not Nate Diaz, but Nick Diaz, his brother, just came back last year to fight Robbie Lawler. Uh, his last fight before that was seven years earlier. Mm-hmm. He's on the same contract he was eight or nine years ago at that point. Well, I should he re-signed, he signed a new contract to fight Robbie Lawler, but he was stuck with the UFC up to that point on the old contract. It seems that, you know, we, we saw instances, you know, Jens Pulver just being announced for, for the Hall of Fame. It, it takes us back to a time when, you know, he was lightweight champion, left the company, similar situation with BJ Penn. We had the Randy Couture situation in 2007. And it seems examples like that, it put a spotlight for the UFC of shoring up any of these provisions that could allow such, um, such a case to occur. And the result has been, we hold so much power that it has gone in such a far direction that it's and, – and the fighters have largely just been complacent here in the sense that they have gone along with all of these changes. And now it is just – they have become so one-sided. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a writing partner, Jacob Debitz, that we're working on a book together. But he, he tracks, like, the changes in contracts over the time. And you can see every time a champion or someone leaves the UFC – they go back and redo the contracts to make them harder to leave. So that, that doesn't happen again. When BJ Penn leaves, we change the contracts. Uh, Randy Couture had a, 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 there was a loophole he thought in his contract that he could use to get out. After that was done, the contracts he'd got more, more stringent and, and more restrictive. So yeah, every time that happens, they make them more restrictive. And it is, it's, it's based on the fact the UFC has so much power. They have, they have two things. They have one. They have the carrot. They have made more money than anybody else. So the the alternative to the exchange for the fighter, like why would you accept this terrible contract? Well, the, the alternative to the exchange is a deal that doesn't pay much because the other promotions, especially during select times in MMA history where the other promotions are gone, that this is really the only option. And so I, I accept it. So the UFC can keep turning that nozzle, that the dial to the right, more and more restrictive with no problem. So the the first antitrust suit comes at, at the end of 2014. It is still ongoing all these years later. But in the wake of that, what are some of the changes that, that you start to see in UFC contract language? And, and when do those changes start to occur? Well, you start seeing the, the real big changes happen in 2017. So the, the, the first antitrust lawsuit, Kung Lee versus Zupa and the other uh, named plaintiffs are Nate Corey and John Fitch and Cal Kingsbury and Brandon Vera. And uh, Javier Vasquez, those are the other named plaintiffs. Uh, that uh, that con that that lawsuit was filed December 16, thousand fourteen. So the the period starts December 16, thousand ten, because there's a four years statute of limitations for antitrust. So it starts then, and it runs to two thousand seventeen, June thirtieth, two thousand seventeen. So right in the middle of right around that date, you start seeing changes in these contracts. The changes are they. They limit how much they can use the tolling provisions. They no longer are the image rights in perpetuity. There's two years after your contract's up, you get your image rights back. Uh, they have a sunset clause. They don't call it that, but there's a five-year maximum duration of the contract. So after that period, they have to end. So all these kind of beneficial changes to fighters, they're, they're positives. Uh, and then the the Cajun-Johnson lawsuits filed uh, in 2021, it runs from Ju- July 1st, 2017 forward. Well, those changes you can see now, Divide the two the two antitrust suits, and so you've split the class. You can no longer if if you have different 
if there's a different market environment because these contract changes, you cannot merge them into one lawsuit. I think that was the intent. So in in effect, this would be th- – those changes would really not affect the, the the first suit and those that would fall under the first class period. This is more so mitigating potential losses from July twenty July 1st, 2017 onward with the, the new class. Yeah, it does two things for you. One is you split the class. You now can't pull them together for one lawsuit. You got to do it separately. You got to trial them separately. You got to do the evidence separately. So it extends the, the cost. It, it, you know, it, it makes it less risky for the UFC because you can extend one suit longer and longer. Uh, the other thing it does is yeah, it mitigates the damages because now you can claim that we've changed these contracts in some way that we're not doing these, these coercive efforts that we did before that you accuse us in in the first suit. We, we're not doing that as much. And so we can't be responsible for as much damages going forward. So you've done two things. You've limited, basically you've sealed off that 2010 to 2017 period as a, as a one-time event that you might have to pay for on your balance sheet. And going forward, you might have problems with this current lawsuit or future ones, but not nearly as bad as that, that, that earlier one. When you look at the, the, the two suits and, what, what from your estimation from, you know, studying this as much as you have and going into, into the nuts and bolts, what would be the, the ideal outcome for the, for the plaintiffs if they got a, a realistic outcome of, of what they could expect, uh, to, to come out of this that is within reason of what you could expect understanding the landscape of the UFC and MMA as a whole? Well, I mean, the, 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 their expectation, I'm sure, is to win. And the most realistic outcome is some sort of settlement. Because if the UFC doesn't settle and it goes into trial and a jury trial, and I know a lot of uh, other uh, media members say, oh, they don't give the plaintiff as much chance because, oh, I don't, they don't agree with the evidence or whatever. You're going to a jury trial. You're going to sit there and have fighters stand up and, and the promotion stand up in front of normal people and say, oh, we keep 80% of the revenue and they only get 20%. That they're, they're broken with CTE, these fighters. That is not a situation you want to take a gamble in because it's very it's very plausible that you could lose that. And if you do, the, the damages that the experts have come up with is anywhere from eight hundred million to one point six billion just for that first period, two thousand ten to two thousand seventeen. And if you lose in an antitrust lawsuit, it treble damages. If you lose by you know in the trial, treble damage means you triple the damages. So that eight hundred million to one point six billion becomes two point four billion to four point eight billion dollars in damages. So that, and best case scenario for the fighters, obviously, is they go all the way to trial and they just play clean house. That's why I think if it gets further enough along, if it gets past class cert and we and get past the appeal process and we get into trial, you'll see the UFC and both sides settle because the one side does not want to take the risk of those massive damages. The other side doesn't want to, doesn't want to carry the, the fight on forever and ever and then end up with maybe losing. So there'll be the most realistic outcome, I think, at that point is several hundred million dollars in favor of the fighters. The one thing is they want a remedy. They want a judge to step in and change the contracts, change the UFC behavior. Well, the, the one problem is in the last hearing, the, the plaintiffs have kind of kicked that can down the road because they said, we don't, we don't need to talk about remedies on the Kung Lee case. We will do that in the Johnson case because mm-hmm. we're going to revisit this. And if you're still abusing your powers, then we have to talk remedies. If you're not, then we don't have to talk remedies. Are you surprised it's even gotten this far that a settlement has not been in the cards yet? Because through discovery and the reporting you have done, like we, we have had unprecedented knowledge into the, the financial structure and seeing there in black and white, like what these percentage of revenues being paid out, like what they are. Yeah, I'm, 
I'm, I was a little shocked because I thought at some point there'd be a settlement. But it makes sense in hindsight to think about it because the way it's, it's, the way it's played out. Because for the UFC, one, they don't want to pay. They don't think they've done anything wrong. Two, the longer it drags out, look at the, what happens to their revenue. Their revenue has exploded and keeps growing, growing. They're past, well past a billion dollars now in revenue. Their EBITDA margins are 50%. So if they can wall off that Kung Lee case and say they end up set, let's say down the road they end up settling and say we have to pay $400 million out to the fighters, that's one year of EBITDA now. One year off the books, like we had one bad year, but we've marked, we've written it off the books. We never have to worry about it again. If this, had, if they had to settle this for that amount three, four, five years ago before the ESPN deal, that might have crippled them. Now it's like a, it's a, it's a bump in the road. How much of a, of an attitude change did you sense among the fighters post sale in 2016? Because it did feel like there was a bit of a light that went off that, you know, prior to the sale to Endeavor, that it it still had this this feeling of you know we are we we are fighting for the, this company. We are still in this you know a lot of fighters that were in that era in the late '90s, early 2000s when this was the dark days, and suddenly it, you're seeing these deals that are in the billions, not millions, and suddenly realizing, wow, we are exceptionally underpaid when we are the product. Yeah, well, actually, there was a radical change amongst the fighters' opinion at that time. You, I remember I was doing a poll of fighters about what their real purses were, what they really were making, because I was trying to get some sort of – so I was doing a survey trying to figure out exactly what fighters made uh, besides the commission reports. And no one was – you know, I got very few people would get back to me. But the one two-punch of first the Reebok deal where they got rid of all the sponsors and you had to wear the Reebok uniform, and then the sale when they realized how much the Pertitas and Dana White, the Zupa, the owners, were going to get from the UFC and, and also saw some of the financials come out and said how much they were making from the UFC because the story up to then is the UFC was not that profitable or, or you know, wasn't incredibly profitable. All the money was going back into the promotion kind of. They realized that, you know, you could tell there was a, a open hostility amongst a lot of fighters. And my survey results, I suddenly got, like, I can't remember what I started with, like a dozen fighters were coming. Within two or three months, I got 70 or 80 fighters kept sharing details of like 200 purses. Unheard of at the time because no one would do that. A few months, by a year later, though, that had waned, that had waned because, you know, the fighters were upset, but then there's such, there's such high turnover in MMA. By two or three years later, you're talking about a whole new crop of fighters that came in that don't have that same feeling. About being like, hey, we, I, t- I took one for the team for years. I didn't get any reward from this. And I think that that is sort of that, that paranoia, that, that fear that exists in a lot of fighters in that, am, am I going to be supported by numbers if I put my neck out? And am I going to be risking my career? That could be a, a fraction of what another athlete's career is. Like I only have a small window to make this money and I do not have the time to enter a gigantic labor dispute with the UFC. And I think you just have that prevailing that unfortunately these fighters are not supported by numbers that it's few and far between that are willing to go public with these issues, much less take any meaningful action with it. Yeah, I mean, no, the, the, Dominic Foxworth, uh, who used to be in the NFL PA, uh, NFL player before that, he's commented on, he's done a lot of, he's done great articles about the, the, what makes the NFL, uh, player association so weak compared to the other player association. And one is such a vast number of players have very short careers. And you think about MMA is much worse. Your, your peak, there, yeah, there's an Anderson Silva and a GSP that have long careers that, you know, at the top. But most fighters, their peak earning potential, the chance when they're at the top and the top 10, a contender, whatever, might be a couple of years. 
any sort of labor dispute, like people are like, oh, the fighters just held out. Well, any sort of labor dispute uh, is going to cripple their potential income. If I'm a if I'm a uh, bus driver, you know, city bus driver, we go on strike. Well, I might be out of work for a few months and lose money, but I know my next 20 years of my career, if I got the raise because we striked, I'm going to see that money come back and then some. A fighter, I strike. Well, by the time, you know, we get some sort of benefits from that, my career might be over because it's so short. On top of that, you're easily replaceable. <laughs> There's nothing that says that we can't swap you up for another another fighter because, like, the NFL, even the bottom guys have a, a, an importance because you need the best players on your team because you're trying to win. Uh, there's nothing that says you need the best fighters on a prelim, you know. So if you step forward, all the UFC has to do is get 20 people to show up every week to hold an event. That's pretty easy to find 20 fighters in the world that will show up. And, and then there are a few headliners that will, you know, what will, will cave in to any sort of labor stoppage. It's also that period that coincides with, with the sale to Endeavor while also moving into so much more of a fixed revenue business, whether it is television rights, whether it's the streaming deal. This is not the same industry of 10 years ago where you are living and dying based on what you can sell on pay-per-view each month. You have a guaranteed income. You have, you know, the, there's still the live event perspective, but it is like this is so much that one fighter steps out. We, we can go a year without a Conor McGregor. We can go three years without a John Jones. It is, you know, unless you're feeling that pressure point from an ESPN, like this company, it, it is so much beyond just being privy to one set of fighters that we have to bend over backwards for. Yeah. yeah. You can see in the past, like a handful of fighters responsible for like a third of the revenue and that pay-per-view revenues were 70% and non-pay-per-view were 30%. So those pay-per-views were incredibly important. Now, because the ESPN deal and the way everything is uh, paid contractually, at least they're, you know, the vast majority is, there's no, there's no variability. So <clears throat> as you, as you point out, uh, individual fighters in the past, maybe a handful of fighters, if they decided we ain't going to fight, it would put pressure on the UFC. If that handful doesn't show up, no, it doesn't matter. They're getting the same checks from ESPN as they did before. The same amount of money's coming in. And all they have to do is wait out this current, you know, holdout. I mean, John Jones held out for a couple of years. And it made no dent in their business. The the one time that they had leverage probably was right after the sale because they took on billions of debt on the expectation that uh, EBITDA would skyrocket when they got their next TV deal. So they, but they were at a point where they were at very tight margins and they need as much money as possible. That's the time Conor McGregor got the Mayweather fight. So I don't think that's a coincidence. He had the leverage and they caved in because they needed as much revenue as possible. That era has passed because now they've blown past with the new ESPN deal, what they were making before. And their revenues and profit margins are so high now that they can, with and consistent revenues are so high, that they can withstand anybody holding out. They don't need anybody to show up to fight. So that leads to the natural question. In, in your estimation, is the idea of just the pipe dream of an association, of a union, is it like to me, I just I can't see how all the parts could come together in such a unique sport like this. Like we we cover a lot of professional wrestling. It's very similar in 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 that sense. Where I mean, what's so attractive about these companies are the fact that you do not have to have the split of revenue with with your talent with your fighters as you do other sports leagues. Nor nor the breakdown of uh, sponsorship money that 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 trickles down. I mean, it's a very advantageous business when you throw out any kind of representation for your core product of your your fighters and talent. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a chance we could have something like an association. I, I'm a pro, I'm a massively pro union guy. People follow me on Twitter; they'll realize I'm very pro union. But I don't see how a union works in MMA, just because the way the industry is constructed. Like I just mentioned about all the the you know the the ability to, that all the fighters are replaceable. It, it makes it kind of hard to have some sort of using the powers of a union solidarity. To do first collectively, first organize enough fighters to join, but then collectively bargain, you know, first use your strike power. That's going to be useless because everybody can cross the line. So I'm not, I don't think that's really a, a realistic solution. An association is possible because you need a, you would need a lot less people involved. But again, there'd be the fear factor. So, uh, I think that the, the solution is, uh, is going to have to be some outside, uh, type of interference basically by like the courts as we're seeing the antitrust lawsuit, potentially the Ali Act. Maybe you have a small association, you know, a handful of fighters in the UFC, uh, I mean, or outside the UFC, like France and Ghana or whatever, show up to Washington, D.C. and get like the Ali Act passed that could make some changes, what's happening. But you're not going to see the, you know, the typical NFL, PA, M, you know, NBPA uh, type of structure where they sit down and negotiate a 50-50 split. And as as well when when you look at just the like a Francis Ngannou that is is so like he just feels like such an outlier in in all of this of somebody that is at the top of the sport and also willing to really really stick his neck out in in some some sorts of this what uh specifics from from his contract in 2017 were uh were of note because this seemed to be the first person that greatly benefited from this sunset clause yeah, I mean, basically it was the sunset clause was the primary thing is that, that they had a set limit to the duration of the contract. So by, by him winning the, uh, the championship and getting the championship clause, he bought out his contract at the end of last year, uh, at, at, the, at the beginning of last year, January, he bought out his last fight of his contract. So technically he should be a free agent. His contract's done, but the UFC they have a championship clause. He won the title. He's adds three fights onto his contract, three fights or one year, whatever's earlier. But under the old rules, if he turned on fights, they could extend that contract six more months every time. So he would have to fight through three more fights to get out of the contract, and that's a very risky proposition. On top of that, the UFC can stretch it out, you know, wait or find times to offer him fights when he's not available, which they've done to other fighters. And so you're talking about instead of having one year left on his contract, it could end up doing two or three years. It could have, you know, burned through the majority of his career. He might not have been able to wait it out. So that sunset clause that they put in to limit damages really is what allowed him to get out of his contract. And he was the first fighter, you know, maybe GSP was the first to take advantage of it, but he's kind of retired. But the first fighter of, the, of that period, because it was it introduced in 2017 and his kicked in at the end of 2022, five years later, he was the first fighter of a group. We might see several others taking advantage of that, but he might also be the last because yeah. we, we, you know, as you know, we now know that the UFC has changed those contracts and tightened them up again. And I think that's kind of why is they, they introduced them to mitigate the damages, but now they're seeing fighters actually take advantage of those. And there is a, that's where the risk to the UFC business model is. They're, they're 800 pound grill. There's not a, a real risk, but if a Francis Ngannou leaves and let's say a John Jones falls suit, you know, it's not the, it's not the, the lower tier fighters. It's that John Jones and Francis Ngannou left and held a fight outside the UFC. That's the type of name value and scale of fight that can make money outside the UFC. And if even if it sells half as much, if the fighters are keeping eighty percent of the revenue instead of twenty percent, like the UFC's how the UFC model works, that means they got double, triple their pay. 
And so that's the threat to the UFC I think they saw is that a handful of fighters could leave the UFC, hold big events outside. You know, we have Nick Diaz leaving. Conor McGregor might fall. Maybe they'll have a match outside the UFC. But there's the chance of that now happening, which puts more pressure on them that they could see these, these big fights going elsewhere. And so they're going to, they're tightening the contracts to prevent that because that's their big risk. So, you know, and uh, of these changes that you have reported on, number one is the fact that, you know, if you are to sign one of those, one of the newer contracts today, the time on your sunset clause, it doesn't start ticking today. It's, we might not book you for six months. That's when the, that theoretically five year window begins, as well as now the rollovers can, like there's there's no limit to the rollovers, correct? Yeah, well, the the tolling provisions that we call them tolling provisions when they can extend your contract because you can't take a fight, you won't take a fight, whatever. And the old rules, they said if you turn down fights, we can extend it six months or or to how long it takes to find a new opponent. But when I mean old, I mean from the 2017 until now contracts, but up to 18 months maximum. Mm-hmm. 18 months is the maximum amount of time we can keep extending your contract if you turn down a fight. But now they got rid of that. So really the maximum is that five-year duration. It's now up to five years. And on top of that, the the five years, like you said, it starts when you not when you sign it, but when you get your first fight. And the periods you're suspended don't count. Now, suspensions are are they talking about you saw the drug suspensions? Are they talking about commission suspensions because you got in a knife fight or or you uh, you failed a drug test, the athletic mission, or are they also talking about those medical expenses? Yeah, extensions, the suspensions you see after every fight. If they count that, it's very easy to see these con- these sunset provisions not being a five year period, but being a six or seven year period, maybe eight. The medical suspensions to me is like that. That's a huge clarification you would want because that that's pretty standard. That you don't hear about them all that often. But if you're in a you know a, a big fight and it's very common that you have these medical suspensions where you're typically you're not supposed to be training for a, a period of time but if that freezes your deal and you're talking about a six fight deal those those periods add up at the at the end as well that yeah. uh, they can freeze yeah when they after every fight there's it's not a comedy or a three month six month medical suspension now later they can get it you know uh they can move, move it down they can go see the commission say oh that my doctor cleared me and then they get a wave but okay now you have to go to the UFC and the UFC can say you got a six-month suspension. We added it to your contract because you're suspended. But you go, well, the doctor got away. Well, now you have this whole – it's vague enough that you have to go to court to get that settled properly, which is probably the intent. They want it vague enough that it's not clear that if you want to if, – if you want you can contest it, but if you want to contest it, you would have to contest it in front of – well, no longer in front of a judge. You have to go arbitrate it now. Yeah, well, that's, that's the next point that they have really um, protected themselves in this other one, which – is that if you have a legal dispute with the company, it is not going through the the regular legal means. It would be with an independent arbitrator behind closed doors. And this extends to your inability to join in on a class action suit, uh, you know, a, a clear response to making sure that there, there are no no more of these. Yeah, well, it's the in 2018, the Supreme Court ruled the NLRA uh, did not ban class action waivers and arbitration agreements. So. Uh, thank you, court, for that one. That really helped a lot of workers in America. <laughs> but workers, they've been putting this into contracts. Now, NFL, PA, NBA, PA, MBPA, I should say, all of them have arbitration. But that's collectively bargained as part of their collective bargaining. Those arbitrations actually go back to the, the union's you know, form, basically. They, they put in arbitration so they could have a way to, uh, to, to negotiate conflicts over current contracts. And those arbitration deals, like with the – 
when the Marvin Miller case uh, with you know after Kurt Flood, Marvin Miller went back and they arbitrated the reserve clause. Those were industry wide arbitrations, right? When the, the judge settled that with the reserve clause, these arbitration for the UFC fighters here is going to be individual. You go in, the arbitrator makes a, a, a judgment that doesn't set precedent. You got to go back and arbitrate it again. If you're the next guy, you might not even realize that some fighter contested a contract provision one and you, because it's closed doors, you have no idea this has been done. So the arbitration will help keep it secret. And of course, the class action waiver prevents any future class actions, not just future ones. The fighters coming up now, if they sign this class, this new agreement, they have to sign to say they will not take part in class action. So no class action will board. But also, except for the Kung Lee class action case that's already ongoing, they cannot participate or be a member if it's class certified, the Johnson case. So if Johnson, the Cajun Johnson case that's already been filed, if that gets class certified and maybe gets a settlement wins damages, you as a fighter have signed on to this agreement and maybe have been fighting the UFC since 2018. Whatever damages they got, you don't get. You would have to go into arbitration and, and, and basically run that case yourself to try to win some damages. So if I was a theoretical fighter, and I emphasize theoretical, and you're my manager, John, and I'm seeing this language. How could you possibly be advising me to sign this deal? Like what is be, beyond the fact that I don't want to rock the boat with, with the UFC? Like this is to me, it's, it's mind blowing that fighters would be signing away these a potential right to what could be an extraordinary level of damages. Well, the one thing a lot of managers aren't really managers. They're brokers for the UFC. Their job is to find fighters to get them in the UFC. So they're not going to tell their fighters to go against it because their goal is to find fighters. I mean, all they don't, they're not negotiating prices and, and purses with, for the, the UFC. They're just getting fighters into the UFC. They offer the, the fighters negotiating with them because they want an opportunity to get into the UFC and the manager provides that opportunity. But other managers actually, there's managers that care about their fighters and you got to sit there and you really got to weigh it. It's like, what is the alternative to the exchange for a lot of fighters? First, the, your client wants to be in the UFC. That's their dream, their goal. You can't say you can't go to the UFC because it's a crappy deal. That's all they care about. You, then you'd probably say, okay, we should sign, even if it's going to suck. The second thing is that for a lot of these uh, uh, these fighters, what's the alternative to the exchange? There's not – the UFC still offers a better deal than the alternative. They have 90% of the industry's revenue. All the money's in the UFC, all the prestige in the UFC, all the awareness, all the, the audience – so getting the UFC is still probably a better deal for them. And, but there is certain fighters you have to, you really would have to wait and say, especially fighters at the end of their career who you have to sit there and go, is it worth signing for a couple fights that don't pay a lot to give up the potential of damages that you could have got or settlement if this case ever, ever wins? And for them, that's something I would really weigh. And, and also for bigger name fighters that have potential to see more money on the market. Do you want to sign something that's going to t- that's going to lock you in so much into the UFC? Those guys. So there's there's a lot to there's a lot to take into consideration, but it really is. What is the alternative to the exchange? And, and I think that that is that that is a huge motivating factor for a lot of these fighters. It is their desire to be in the UFC that you're you're starting from that position of already giving up a certain amount of leverage when you make it clear that like this is where you want to be, even taking a sacrifice, while also with the knowledge that. I think most fighters, they will be in there with the mindset, I will be that 1% that will make it to the top, that will make those millions. That is almost the mindset you need to have ingrained within yourself. When, uh, and, uh, 
we'll uh we'll, we'll wind this down in a couple of minutes. This is it, it's a fascinating look at at an area of the industry that I think not a lot of fans truly understand just the 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 exact restrictions that exist. From your reporting, John, what has sort of been the feedback you have seen from the audience and their appetite for th- this kind of information in, in this uh, detail of ones yeah. that are curious and others that maybe do not want to know exactly how the clock ticks in the mixed martial arts space? Well, I, the, the people that, follow, that I interact with are mostly the, the hardcore fans that are into these sort of financial stuff. So they're they're all pleased. They want to know more. And I've gotten some feedback and comments from fighters and managers that were happy about it, that they saw this, and that I broke it down and stuff. Because for some managers, these are new introductions. They prop, might not have seen them yet. They're not where they haven't shown up in their contracts yet. So it's they, they like that this has been done. But overall... I've noticed, I think there's, there's not much appeal for these type of stories. The majority of fans don't really care about these stories. They're just, they're, this is something that doesn't interest them. Either they're hostile to it because they're, you know, the UFC is their team or it's just, they're just, they're too casual fans. The, the, what they want to see is people fight. They don't want the, the nuts and bolts. They're not interested about the contractual rights or the finances. So for the vast majority, if you look at it, you and a few, you know, the few podcasts are the ones that have that talked about the story, there hasn't been much uh, follow-up in the other media sites, MMA media sites, if you noticed. I mean, I don't see the other major sites doing follow-up stories about these contract provisions and the changes, what they mean. Well, and I I think you also hit on what is like kind of the secret sauce of the entire thing is that to an average UFC consumer, they are on the side of the organization in that – I, I want to see Francis Ngannou and John Jones. I don't want to see fighters going off uh, to, to other companies or being split apart or having purse bids to put together the best fights. Yeah. A lot of fans want to see just everyone under one umbrella. Uh, I don't have to concern myself about how these fighters are making money. And the UFC leans on that fact that in the court of public opinion, there's going to be a lot of pro management uh, within the fan base. Yeah, it's also, to me, it's a, a sure sign of the, the direct lineage of MMA from pro wrestling. The idea of the promotion being the entity that delivers to the fans, that the, the promotion of the team. We saw when I was a kid, I was an AWA fan. We loved the AWA. We didn't like the WWF when I was a kid. Uh, so that, that, or the end of, well, the NWA, we were, you know, they were all right. But, the, but still, you had this, the idea that this is my team, my promotion. And the UFC has done the same thing where they built up the idea of a promotion, a self-contained universe, and and you were a fan of them, kind of like you'd be a fan of the WWE or you'd be a fan of the Yankees or or the Cowboys. So it's it's a it's an interesting development because in boxing, you don't I'm a massive boxing fan too, but you don't see it. You don't see it. You have some fan bases that are like big, you know, uh, matchroom or, or PVC, but nothing like this. There's, no. Generally, the fans don't care that who's the promoter putting on the fight. In MMA, it's a very big deal who's putting on the fight. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating discussion, John. I've been doing a lot of studying of late of sort of the the evolution of, of the the NHL and the NHLPA, and j- just reading like it is not hyperbole to state that where MMA is right now, it's it's like 1960 in comparison, and at that time, it was still like 
hockey players were not even given their physical contracts to look over. And it was so much that you play for the love of the game. And it's this idea of these owners withholding, not, not making transparent at all what they're making. And they're in the dark. And it would be, Gordy Howe, write down what you feel you are worth. And it was this oath to the team that they got through and then realizing how much money they were they were being shortchanged. And again, it was just this idea that you don't, you don't fight back against the game. And I think a lot of that still exists of fighters that if they all banded together, they, they do not want to destroy this sport. And I think that that as ridiculous as that sounds, I think like that's the kind of tactics that are embedded in some of these fighters. What's an interesting comparison is when you look at the NHL, that the fasting period when they had this, the WHA, they had this massive competition. Yet yes. the, the wages didn't really skyrocket as much as they should have, partly because the head of the uh, NHL player association was, was working on the behalf of the owners. But if you compare that to the NBA, NBA, the same period, same revenues in the seventies, Player wages skyrocketed because they had people like, you know, uh, uh, I can't remember the guy that ran the uh, NBA players, but they had Oscar Robertson and they had all these guys, players that were really on the ball about how to use antitrust and how to use competition and the labor force to, to build their, their wage share. And they were getting two thirds of the revenue at that time. So I, I always think that's the fascinating comparison. These two examples that followed a similar path, but the obvious split in the seventies. It's not until 1990 that hockey players' salaries are disclosed publicly. And we're still in that dark age in MMA where it's like you get these fictitious figures that are presented publicly. But like fighters don't even want to disclose what they're making, even though I think that would be a benefit to them if this was all out in the open and you would have bargaining power. You would have comparables to what, what you are what you are worth versus a fighter of, of similar stature. Yeah, yeah, disclosure. I mean, the, the, when, after they passed the Muhammad Ali Boxing Re- Reform Act, uh, the, the, the general accounting office did a, uh, survey of it. What, you know, what, how is it working? A report. And one of the things is that the, one of the most important things that the commissions could do is disclosure of purses. And we've seen the last few years that less and less state commissions are disclosing persons because the promotion, namely the UFC, has asked them not to. They've been, you know, and so they've stopped. Even though that's one of the best things you could do is transparency of persons to help fighters, the commissions have stopped doing that. Uh, this has been a, a tremendous chat, John. I really appreciate you uh, joining us. I want to alert everybody uh, that you can follow all of John's work at bloodyelbow.com and the Hey Not The Face podcast. You can also follow him. At hey, not the face, uh, the the trademark handle of one uh, John Nash. But uh, anything else you want to get out there, John? Uh, no, this was very enjoyable. I appreciate this, uh, even though it's you know for me, I'm a, I'm a little I'm a little out of it today. So yes, we uh, we we woke up, John, at, at the crack of dawn. But uh, we we yeah. so appreciate you uh, joining on, and we will. Uh, I, I would definitely love to have you back on. This is uh, oh, this yeah. is only the uh, scratching the surface of uh, a lot of the great work that you do. So thank you so much for the time, John. Oh, appreciate it. Thank you.